the staff of that conference that basically shepherded and uh, supported and assisted the local church were all centralized in mostly northern California. And so uh, Paul Wilson, who brings his greetings, our superintendent, uh, said, you know what, we, we need somebody in Arizona. Pat, I want you to consider uh, leaving your church and becoming the associate superintendent. So I am the first ever Arizona uh, bre- uh, bread uh, pastor staying right here and serving the conference. So you got me, and I'm here to support you and all of the churches in Arizona. Super excited about that. I also get to oversee uh, Southern California, uh, so uh, I've got a, a little bit of a, a, a travel every now and then, but I'm excited to uh, be with you and excited to uh, bring God's Word to you uh, this morning. Uh, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of the PSWC uh, for being a very supportive and generous church. So you may or may not know this, but you, know that you, you give uh, a certain amount of money each year to the conference. And a lot of times in other denominations, people will call that, well, that's our dues. You know, those are our dues. These are not dues. You have planted churches. You have supported youth ministry, conference-wide youth ministry. You have allowed churches to do justice and bring mercy. Uh, you have done countless things that you may or may not even know about. Uh, you have helped people come to Christ who you may not meet this side of heaven, but know that you have done that uh, because you have been a generous church. So thank you on, on behalf of the PSWC for what you have done. Uh, you know, having a guest preacher is really a little bit like going on a blind date. So you know that somebody's going to show up and, and uh, you're not sure what they're going to look like or what they're going to be like, but you've got to endure at least a couple hours with them. I'm not going to be here for a couple hours preaching, just 30 minutes. So my, my hope is that, uh, that I will encourage you and uh, that I can uh, uh, get you ready for what's coming, a great season of ministry with a brand new pastor uh, showing up next uh, uh, Sunday. Uh, my mom was a preschool teacher. My, my mom and dad were both educators their whole lives, and she often had some really great stories about little drawings that her preschoolers uh, would make for her, and she'd have to figure out what they were. And she heard this story of another preschool teacher uh, who uh, found a little four-year-old who had drawn a picture, had no clue what it was, asked her what it was. She said, well, it's a picture of God. And, you know, the teacher was trying to be gracious but truthful and said, well, you know, nobody really knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, well, they will when I'm done. (laughs) So, So my hope this morning is that you will have perhaps a little bit better picture of who God is. Now, we come from all different places spiritually. Some of you are maybe new to faith, maybe even pre-faith. Some of you have been in the faith a long time. But my hope is that you'll have a a little better picture of who God is, what God looks like, who he cares about, who matters to him. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we're grateful for these moments where we can press the pause button on all the distractions outside of here, just for a moment, to focus our attention on you and what you have to say to us. So God, I pray that you would open up our our hearts and our ears, and God, that you would move me out of the way that you might speak. In your son's name, amen. So what does God look like? Again, not a physical picture of what God looks like, but But when we think of God, what are the descriptions that that come to our brains and we feel in our our hearts? Some of us maybe come from a background where, you know, God's kind of like a cosmic sheriff. You know, every time we do something wrong, you know, he's picking us off. Uh, Some some of us maybe come from a background where, you know, he's more like Santa Claus. You know, I just ask what I want and he should just give it to me. 
Uh, some of us have all kinds of just kind of crazy, weird pictures of who God is and what he looks like. But God, by his very nature, is self-defining. So we don't have to guess what he's like because he tells us what he's like. He tells us through his word, and more specifically, he tells us through his son, Jesus, what he looks like. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you use a paper Bible still, uh, find Luke 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, if you use a handheld device and you have a mobile uh, uh, Bible on your app there, then find that. Uh, Luke 15 is where we're going to be at. Um, how many uh, in the room here uh, are either familiar with real estate or maybe work in the real estate industry? Okay, couple. So there's a, kind of a three-word mantra for people in real estate, and that mantra is location, 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 right. So, so when it comes to the Bible, I think that we also have a, a three-word mantra, and that mantra is context, context, context. Oftentimes when we read the Scriptures, we read it, as we should, with Southwest American Western eyes. That's what we filter everything through. But it was not written for us. It was actually written in a very different context. And so sometimes I think we, we read things, and maybe we've read this, this passage in particular over and over again, but until we see it in the context it was written, perhaps there are some things that, that we missed along the way. So I'm going to kind of fill in some of the, the context for you this morning. Um, first, you know, you may not be surprised by this, but Jesus often had a very difficult time with the religious establishment of the day. Did you know that? That Jesus, yeah, he kind of bumped heads with, with the, the leaders in, in the, you know, the Jewish framework of spirituality in his day. And in this particular passage, he, he bumps up against them again. They did not like him uh, horning in on their religious turf. He did not like that the masses were drawn to him. And yet, here he finds himself in a particular place with that audience and an audience of the people who were following him. So who is this God that Christianity, and Jesus in particular, describes to us. So we're going to pick it up in Luke 15. I'm going to use the NIV for the first two verses, and then the NLT for the rest. That's a new international version and the New Living Translation. So here we go. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now let me just stop right there. I think it's really interesting that the 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 sinners, the tax collectors, and when you hear tax collector read government subsidized extortionists, so they were the worst of the worst. That's who they were. So it's interesting to me that the, that the sinners gathered around Jesus and the religious types muttered. The religious types muttered, the sinners gathered. Two very different, uh, distinct ways that they engaged with Jesus. They gathered around Jesus these tax collectors and sinners. And, and the way this word plays out in the original language is that they, they drew near. They were attracted to him. They were captivated by him. Uh, he was compelling, engaging, beckoning, enchanting, enthralling, fascinating, provocative, magnetic, just like all of us. Right? I mean, these people, they, 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 they smelled an aroma of love from this Jesus. They, they, they knew there was something about him that they had to have. I try to ask myself that question every day. Who's attracted to Pat Stark because of his love for Jesus? Because in, in whatever way I am trying through the grace of God to become more like him, who is attracted 
to us because of our love for Jesus. Who out there in this world, the lost people of our world, the sinners that we engage with every single day, the tax collectors of our era, are they attracted to the likes of me, to my life, because of how I live? These people were stating with their bodies. I mean, they were showing up. I have to get near this guy. I have to see what this Jesus is all about. But the Pharisees, different story. Uh, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Wouldn't that be great if people said that about us? (laughs) They welcome sinners and eat with them. Uh, in fact, if there's a, uh, for my grave marker, I hope in the running for what's on there is he welcomed sinners and ate with them. That would be a nice way uh, to, to remember my life by. He met them where they were, this Jesus. In fact, the writer of, of Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke, he could have used two different words for welcome. One is kind of the standard welcome. Somebody knocks at your door, you welcome them into your house. That's the standard welcome, but that's not the word he used. He used kind of a a welcome on steroids. The kind of welcoming that Jesus did was almost a pre-welcome. He knew people were coming, and he couldn't wait for them to come and be around him. He couldn't wait to welcome them into his life. I mean, it's the kind of welcome that, you know, when when the little kids are are waiting at home for mom and dad to come home from work, you know, they're just, they can't wait for them to come. It's the person who's at the airport and and can't wait for the service person who's been uh, fighting for our country abroad to come home. It's that kind of a welcome that Jesus gives these people. He welcomed them, this Jesus. He welcomed them. And I think Jesus could sense this great diversity with the people who were listening to him. He had the the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees on one side who couldn't stand him. And he had the tax collectors and the sinners who hoped, hoped that this message they were hearing from Jesus, this, this life they were experiencing from Jesus was going to give them a chance to connect with God. And I'm guessing Jesus knew this. I'm guessing somewhere in his mind he thought, here's my chance to tell both of these audiences just what my Father in heaven is like and who matters to him. So Jesus tells three parables in a row. It's the only time in all of the scriptures that he does this. In all of the Gospels, this is the only account that we have where he tells three parables. A parable is a story with a point that he tells them in succession, three in a row. And you're probably familiar with them. He talks about 100 sheep, 10 coins, and a son. I know there's two sons. We've got time for one this morning. 100, 10, 1. You see what he's doing? Jesus, the master storyteller, is he is helping people's attention to focus in on just who is important to God by telling these stories in succession. And he begins, verse 3, So Jesus told them this story, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep in the same way. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God 
than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. A few things about sheep. Uh, When a sheep is terrified, they will stay put, they will hunker down, they will bleat, and they will cry, and they most certainly will not last long because they're stupid and they don't realize they're attracting predators that are going to kill them and eat them. But this shepherd, this particular shepherd, goes searching for this lost sheep, goes on an all-out rescue mission to find this sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he comes back, and it's not just enough to be relieved, but he is so excited, so amazed that he has found this lost sheep that he calls his shepherd buddies together, and he says, let's throw a party because what was lost has now been found. And Jesus connects the mental dots with his audience, and he says, that is just like it is in heaven. When one sinner repents, there is a party going on in heaven. And this is not in the scriptures, but I believe that Jesus might have taken a pause at that moment just to make sure that his audience was tracking with him. And then he continued with parable number two. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me. Because I have found my lost coin. In the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now in this era, if you were a widow, if you were an older single female, if you did not have the support of a male family member, you were extremely vulnerable. In fact, the only means for you to leave that vulnerability would be to be financially solvent enough to care for yourself. So it stands to reason that these ten coins represent the full amount of her estate. So losing one-tenth of her estate, her means of survival, is a huge big deal. And so she goes on an all-out hunt, an all-out search in her house to find this coin. And when she finds it, she calls her friends together and says, rejoice with me so, because what was lost, what I was counting on for my life I have found. And Jesus again connects the dots with the people. And he says, that's just like it is in heaven. When one sinner, just one sinner, is found, one lost person is found, there's a party in heaven. There's a party in heaven. And again, not in the scriptures, but I think Jesus probably paused and said, hope they're all tracking with me. Hope they're all engaged with what I'm telling them. And then he begins with probably the most well-known parable in the entirety of Scripture. The parable of the, of the prodigal son or of the lost son. You probably know it pretty well. Uh, Karen and I, again, have three kids, and when they were little, um, occasionally we would misplace one of them. Or to, and, and to be perfectly honest, and because she's present with me, it usually happened when she was out of town on a trip or something and I was home alone with the kids. We would... I would lose a child or misplace them. And in this one time, I was home uh, on a Saturday morning uh, with all three kids. They were little. Our youngest, Ben, was about two. And, and the, uh, two of the kids, the older kids, were watching the DVD, and I was getting breakfast ready. And Ben liked to hide. He loved to hide, especially from Dad, and so I couldn't find him. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, hey, kids, you, you guys see where Ben is? No. Ben! Ben! You know, I'm wandering around the house. Ben, where are you? Ben, come on. Where are you, Ben? 
Nothing. No sound. So again, I'm like, okay, guys, seriously, do you know, is he hiding? Do you know where he is? I haven't seen him, Dad. I wander out into the backyard, check the pool gate. It's locked. No Ben out there. No Ben in the backyard. No Ben in the side yard. I come back inside. Ben, where are you? Come on, Ben. 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 No Ben. And now the older two are getting worried, and they're not watching the DVD anymore, and they're thinking, Dad has lost a kid again. And so I'm getting a little frantic myself, and I'm wandering around the house at a little faster pace. Ben, where are you? Ben, come on, this is not funny anymore. No, Ben, I go through the garage door, and the car garage door is open to the street with cars going by at 35 miles an hour. And I run out into the street, and I look north, and I look south, and I don't see my son. I run back inside. I grab the phone. I'm dialing 911 when I see under the dining room table two little feet, size 2T. And Ben is there sucking on his favorite dessert, a bottle of Crest toothpaste. (laughs) And we lock eyes, and he knows he is busted. And I go running underneath the table and grab him, and he thinks he is in big trouble, and I thought I was in big trouble. And I just hold him. And I don't think that's what he was expecting me to do. But I just held him in my arms. Because I thought my kid was lost. I thought he was gone. But I'd found him. And I just held him as tightly as I could. And I think in in some small way, in some just minute way, this might be what God the Father experiences, what he feels in here, when a son or a daughter who is lost comes home. And so that's how Jesus begins this third parable. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told the father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, do you know what the crowd would have said at this point? Context now. They would have said, no way. And Jesus would have said, way. And they would have said, no way, because no Jewish father on earth would have allowed such conversation to transpire with any son, let alone the younger son. In Jewish uh, uh, tradition, uh, two-thirds of the estate went to the oldest son upon the father's death. One-third went to the younger son. And here's the younger son completely speaking out of turn, asking for his part of the estate now before his father dies. It was embarrassing. It was insulting. And that's why the crowd would have been (gasps) aghast at what Jesus was saying. He asked for his share of the estate. Translation, Dad, your rules, your regulations, they're getting in the way of my life. I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. Now, if this was not in Jesus' parable, if this was in real life happening, a good Jewish father would take his son into the public square and he would slap him across the face several times to bring great shame upon him. That's what the people thought Jesus was going to say. But that's not what he said. He's asking his father to give him a third of everything right now 
as astonishing as this is, it would have been ten times that for the crowd that was hearing this parable from Jesus. But what's even more shocking is the father's response. So his father agreed, here it is, to divide his wealth between his two sons. Despite the breathtaking, insulting audacity of the younger son's request, the father grants it. And one more time, the crowd would have said, no way. Jesus would have said, wait, this is no ordinary father. No ordinary father. The story continues, a few days later. Now, let me just tell you what that means. A few days later, that, 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 is, that is shrinking down a whole lot of things that would have happened in that period of time. A few days later means, just so you understand what's transpired here, that the father has had to liquidate assets to accommodate the younger bratty son. I mean, he's had to sell off some cattle and some sheep and the John Deere tractor and the combine. I mean, everybody in the village knows what's going on. It's embarrassing. Great shame is coming down on the father for actually doing what the younger son requests. So when it says a few days later, there's a whole lot that's happened in that time. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now, this phrase, a distant land, is code in this context, because it means that he is voluntarily leaving the Holy Land, being a good Jewish boy, he's leaving the Holy Land, and he's, he's exiling himself to the Gentile land, a country where he could live loosely without being censured by his fellow Jews living around him. He wanted to go and get out of Dodge so that he could live his life of sin, fund his sinful lifestyle by what he took from his father. No accountability. No good friends to tell you you're an idiot. No mentor to slap you upside the head. Just viva Las Vegas. And he wasted all of his money. Whose money? All of his money on wine, women, and song. And he wasn't doing a lot of singing. He blew it. He blew it all. About this time, his money ran out, it says. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Local farmer means that he's got a ranch, that he's got some property, he's got land, cattle. Does that sound familiar? Just like his dad. Except it's not his dad. He left this beautiful life with his dad in exchange for this life that is the only thing standing between him and death. And the word that's used here is he attaches himself to the farmer. It's not like the farmer put up an ad for some help. He's not looking for somebody to help him. He attaches himself to the farmer because he thinks, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And it sounds like, well, you know, at least the farmer's, you know, helping him out, giving him a hand, you know, hiring him on to slop his pigs. Actually, it's the worst thing that the farmer could do. It's almost like the farmer is trying to get rid of him. And some scholars say that's exactly what he's trying to do in this parable. 
because he's asking him to slop. He's asking a Jewish boy who is not supposed to touch pork or be around pigs or swine of any kind, he's asking him to feed the thing that he's not supposed to touch, hoping he'll leave. He doesn't. I spent a year of my life after college doing a lot of crazy stuff, and in one, in one of the things I did was slop hogs. It is the most disgusting job ever. And that's what this guy, that's the only thing he found that he could do. The young man became so hungry. It gets a little worse. You don't think it gets worse? It gets worse. The young man becomes so hungry that, he, that even the pods he was feeding the pigs, the slop, looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. This is what my friends in 12-step recovery would call hitting bottom. I mean, this is it. He is at the very bottom of what life can offer. This was a four-part harmony of humiliation. Just to review, he was reduced to a state of hunger and had to subject himself to a Gentile. That's humiliation number one. And to feed the Gentiles pigs, humiliation number two. He would have been happy just to eat what the pigs were eating, humiliation number three, but nobody gave him anything, not even from the pig slop, humiliation number four. Jesus says, when he finally came to his senses, ah, so at least he comes to his senses. When he finally comes to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. Well, at least he has a plan. At least he's come to his senses. He's going to apologize all the way back to the farm, now a third less farm, by the way. And he's well aware that being a son is not even on the docket. But at least, at least, he thinks, Dad might hire me back as one of his farmhands. I can imagine him rehearsing the speech all the way back, over and over again. Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. But please, hire me back. I've sinned against you in heaven. But over and over, I can imagine him practicing this speech. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. The father, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And again, the crowd would have said, no way. And Jesus would have said, wait, this is no ordinary father. This is no ordinary Jewish father. Now, a couple things. It says, while he's still a long ways off, the father saw him. What does that mean? It means the father's looking for him. He has he, he is, he is not, you know, counted him as dead. He's no longer my son. He is scanning the horizon, hoping and praying someday that my son will come home. My son who is lost, he will come back. He's looking for him. And then, this is, this is why the crowd, and, and I think this is why Jesus is telling this parable the crowd would have just gone nuts because no Jewish patriarch, no Jewish landowner 
of this kind of prestige would ever run anywhere. He pays people to run for him. He doesn't run. But this father does. Can you picture this? He's wearing his, his fancy tunic and his fine turban and his, his, his fine leather uh, sandals. And he starts running. He hikes up his tunic exposing lily white legs. And he starts running for his son. Sandals flipping off in the air. Turban unraveling as he goes. Why is he running? Well, well, scholars tell us that if a son did this to a family, it would not just bring shame on the father. It would bring shame on the entire family and, yes, even the entire village. And so if the son made it back into the village, the village people, they would meet him in the square and they would bring out a large jar, a clay jar, and they would perform what's called a kazaza ceremony. And they would take the jar and they would break it in front of him and he would be shunned from the village and from anybody in that place forever. That's why the father runs. And the people listening, they would have said, oh yeah, he better run because if the, if the townspeople get there before he does, it's over. And the father, as the son's trying to get the speech out, you notice he only gets half of it out because the father's holding him, loving him, taking the shame of what his son has done on himself. Isn't this what Jesus does for us? Doesn't he take the full brunt of our shame? on the cross at Calvary so that we don't have to? Doesn't he welcome us into his arms no matter what we have done when we turn to him? Verse 22, but his father said to the servants, before the son can get the full you know, confession out, before he can ask to be hired on, his father interrupts and says to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and he has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party begins. I think these actions of the father in this parable, Jesus' parable, I think they teach us a couple of things. One, the father was not going to treat the son as a hired servant. It wasn't even an option. It didn't even come up because the younger son still remains a son. The sandals brought to a son are a symbol of the father's acceptance of his son. You see, servants didn't wear sandals. Only the master and his family wore sandals and he is reinstating him as a son. The robe, an even higher honor, it's called a first-ranking garment. He takes his fine linen and he covers his shame. He covers the filth from being a swine herder. And the last gift, the ring, is a sign of authority. He reinstates him, having authority with he and his family. 
and he orders the fatted calf to be slaughtered. And this is just the coup de grace on top of all of it. Because the fatted calf, you see, was, was saved for those moments in, in the village, in the family's life. Things like bar mitzvahs, wedding feasts. As you know, the Jewish culture, they love to throw a good party, and that's what this calf was for. And so he says, kill the fatted calf because my son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost has been found. And he throws a mega feast for this homecoming for his son. So listen, here's my hope. Here's my hope for hope. Get it? My hope is that as you begin this new season of ministry with your new senior pastor, that you will be a people who are scanning her horizon for lost people in your life. That you will be looking and waiting for that coworker who's going through a crisis, for that neighbor who left the church a long time ago because they did something they didn't like, for people in your life who have no clue who Jesus is or what he did. My hope is that you are constantly scanning the horizon for those people and that you are living your life in such a way, in such a way that the aroma of God is all around you and people gather around you because of the Jesus that you follow. That's my hope and my prayer for you as you begin this new season. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we're so grateful for your word and the way it speaks to us individually, uniquely. And God, my prayer is for this community called Hope that you would fill them with passion for people who are lost so that they might experience the Jesus that they follow. They might experience the abundant life that they have. So God, I pray that you would supercharge them as they begin this new season, that you would grow them, that people would, would hang around the folks of hope and say there's something about them, something they have that I want, something that I need. And God, I pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.